we are probably at the easier to work with end of enterprise because our technology is so new that we can go in and set somebody up for you know tens of thousands of dollars as opposed to some of our competitors where the starting point is a hundred or two hundred or you know five hundred thousand dollars. So we tend to be the easier to use lower end of the enterprise, but we are being used by you know some of the biggest companies in the world. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. Today we have Will Anderson, who is the CEO of Resolver, which is the risk backbone for over 1,000 of the world's largest organizations. Will, how's it going? Very good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you give us a little background on kind of just who you are and what your story is? For sure. So uh, as you mentioned, we work with over a thousand large organizations around the world to uh, provide them a SaaS risk management solution. That ranges from things like compliance software, internal audit, business continuity, disaster recovery, incident management, and cyber incident management. Got it. Okay. And so for in, in layman's terms, if you're explain to a fifth grader, what do you do? So uh, the best way to probably explain it to somebody from outside of those kind of markets is uh, speaking specifically of, say, incident management, just think of what you would imagine as a police system. So we will dispatch guards to an incident that may be reported by an employee at, um, you know, say, a Silicon Valley campus. We'll have people investigate that problem, and so they'll take witness statements and that sort of work. And then they'll track that through to things like changes in policy. Does, is this a risk that we're managing? Do we need to put steps in place to mitigate it? So that would be one example of what we do. We also help people run workflow for managing sort of compliance activities. So you would think about us as sort of the back office that helps businesses keep things under control and manage the risks as opposed to being an operational system. We're there to sort of help them protect their assets, their people, their brands, their investors. Got it. And so how does one come up with this idea? I guess even before I ask that question or before you answer, it's, you know, you guys have raised 36 million since then been, you know, there's been an acquisition, you guys uh, have been acquired. But I mean, clearly, this is a business that works, right? When I look at when I watch Shark Tank, sometimes I look at like Robert Herjavec, and he's talking about security. I think about something like this, it's, it's just as kind of a, in the air for me as it is with that. So like, how do you even get into a business like this? So I started out on the investment side. I'd previously worked as an executive with a company that did regulatory software for government. And if you spend time with government regulators, you start to get curious about how people actually manage the regulation because there's a lot of it and nobody could really be on top of it. So I started out with about 20 of that 36 million uh, looking for businesses to buy that had something to do with regulatory. And I ended up finding a really nice business called PPM 2000, which did the sort of more physical security incident management. And it was kind of close enough for me that I felt like I could put that together with some other pieces. And we started out with the thesis of, you know, managing risk management in an organization today requires 
10, 20, 30, or even more software systems. And that looked to me a little bit crazy. And so what we want to do is pull all of those together into one platform, sort of like what an SAP did you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago to bring together ERP. We want to do something similar with risk. And so instead of having to have a different internal audit system and a different incident system and a different IT security system and a different threat and vulnerability system, we want to bring that into one platform. And so that Got was the, the initial thesis, and we've been working at that since. Okay. So you had this initial kind of uh, model, let's call it, I don't know if it's an M&A model, but you had, okay, you're like, okay, I'm going to take, you know, this 20 million and I know exactly what I'm looking for. And then we're just going to follow this model. And it basically worked out, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we, uh, we use M&A, but we, we're not like a typical private equity roll up. Uh, so when we buy things, we're usually trying to buy expertise around a category because to build what we want to build it's a lot of different use cases and nobody could possibly know them all. So we use acquisition as an accelerator. We tend to buy more mature businesses. We're not buying the sleekest and sexiest SaaS product. We buy something with older technology and we often migrate it to our technology. There's exceptions to that. Sometimes we buy some stuff that's pretty good, but more or less we're using it to gain the expertise so that we can bring somebody a full solution. So for us, m and is a bit of an accelerator as opposed to we're not like a financial buyer of any sort. Got it. And I'm assuming, I mean, looking for deals like this, and maybe I'm overcomplicating it in my head, but I mean, how do you go about getting this this deal flow and finding these kind of regulatory companies? Well, I mean, it's relatively easy. We, you know, we it, it the process would look like really anybody's sort of marketing engine. You know, we have, you know, email programs, we have calling programs. At the end of the day, there's probably somewhere around 500 targets for me. And they were actually relatively easy to call. The advantage mm-hmm. that we have is that when we call them, they usually kind of know who we are because we compete somewhere adjacent to them or we could be a partner. And the CEO, if he gets a call from me as a CEO, as opposed to trying to sell him something, we can have an interesting conversation. So even if they're not for sale, we we can build a relationship. Um, and if they are, we tend to be a more interesting buyer to them because we, we typically keep all the people. We want to do well by the customer. And so we tend to keep their business going forward. And so that makes it a little bit easier to make those relationships. But it looks identical to like an old school cold calling sort of effort. Got it. And it's, I'm not going to go too too deep into this, but I'm just curious, how do you, you, you talked about it, the conversation can go in different directions, right? It's either a partnership or potential acquisition. And so how do you, from CEO to CEO, how do you, what's your process for going about opening that conversation? They come through all regards. So some actually, I see a lot of flow myself now. People know that I buy this kind of stuff. And so they'll come to us. Sometimes I'll just call them out of the blue and, you know, hey, how's your funding going? You know, are you, is this something you would consider? I'm usually pretty upfront about that. Uh, mm. Sometimes I'm calling to be a partner and I'll say, hey, I want to be a partner. If I'm calling to buy them, I don't tend to beat around the bush. I'm, hey, would you consider selling? Mm-hmm. I haven't really had to do it in the last year because I probably have a backlog of about 10 deals we could do. We just need the capacity to do them. Got it. Okay. Well, let's dive into the business. I mean, how how do you guys how do you guys make money? You know, we're a typical SaaS business. We're probably a little more towards the um, enterprise side of things. So we sell a lot to Fortune 100 and large you know customers that you would know, and we. You know, we're using the typical sort of inbound marketing machine. We use partnerships. We use all the kind of classical pieces, but we are probably at the easier to work with end of enterprise because our technology is so new that we can go in and set somebody up for you know tens of thousands of dollars as opposed to some of our competitors where the starting point is a hundred or two hundred or you know five hundred thousand dollars. So we tend to be the easier to use lower end of the enterprise, but we are being used by you know some of the biggest companies in the world. Got it. And what is, I mean, what, what these uh, Fortune 100s, I mean, well, how does price, what does the average kind of deal size look like, I guess? 
today, because we tend to still sell not the entire platform at once. So we'll sell them one thing. We'll sell them cyber incident management or we'll sell them IT risk or vendor risk or incident management. One application with us for a Fortune 100 can range anywhere from, say, 30,000 for like a smaller entity, like maybe a hospital. For a Fortune 100, it's usually going to be 100 or 150,000. Our biggest account is a government agency for over a million. So we run pretty wide. Like we have customers that pay us $5,000 and we have a customer that pays us a million. Got it. So is the way it works, it sounds like you guys have you know multiple things, obviously. So is it kind of a land and expand deal where your salespeople just try to get one thing kind of foot in the door and then you expand into that account? So we're at the, the very edge of that, the beginning of that, because our, again, our platform is very new. We released it uh, beta, the newest stuff we released in beta a little over a year ago. And really, we're only aggressively selling it starting in Q3. So we're really selling our first use cases, but that is the goal. Like when you buy stuff from us, you actually get the whole platform. If you buy instant manage from me, you'll see an option to just turn on internal audit, but you might need more users for it. But if you're a user and you use everything we use, I'm not going to charge you more per module in general. There's a few things that are kind of additional, but for the most part, you get the whole platform. Great. And you talked about the, the inbound marketing machine for you guys. So how, how does that work? Because I imagine not many people are searching for this stuff. I'm, so I'm curious what you guys are doing right now. No, a lot of people are searching for it. So, I mean, internal audit's a keyword. Physical security mm-hmm. is a keyword. Command center is a keyword. Um, okay. Financial compliance. They're usually kind of micro-targets, so you're not seeing a massive volume. It's not like somebody's searching for CRM. But when you add them all together, it's a fair amount. So, you know, we do search engine optimization. We do pay-per-click. We use, like, classical stuff like Captera. We do our own sort of blog posting to generate stuff. We're on social media. All the typical things that you would see from a business-to-business SaaS company. Right. So what I'm hearing is the volume might not be that big, but the people that are searching for it, these are the big whales you're aiming for. Yeah. I mean, you get all kinds of stuff. You get students, you get all the bycatch that anyone else would get, but the people are generally looking for it. And you know, there's a lot of word of mouth and people bought us here. And so they buy us here, like all the classical stuff you see in enterprise, but mm-hmm. we do get every week, we'll see some sort of say fortune 500 show up and be like, Oh, I know those guys. And you suddenly right. you're demoing to a very big organization just via inbound. Great. How did you go about acquiring, let's just say the first hundred customers? Well, I mean, we we literally acquired them. So um, in our world, so I mean, again, I started out and had the... Oh, you bought the deal and the customers were there. Yeah, I bought the company and we had the customers. Now on the new product... It's all that stuff. Like, so we, we basically have some older, you know, I wouldn't say legacy, but mature businesses. Underneath of that, there were, we're building a startup. And those first deals were almost all like pounding the pavement, getting like inbound marketing. But I mean, again, we hadn't a brand because we bought the brand. So we've had to refresh it and do some things to make it a bit more modern. But we've had the benefit of not having to start one day looking at zero customers. That, that was not where we were. We, we skipped that I stage love that. by buying a few companies. I love that. Yeah, we should we should just do a complete episode on buying companies maybe another time. I'd be really keen on that. But anyway, you have this marketing machine, you know, you're buying other companies. I guess what's one kind of unique thing you're doing today you think in terms of customer acquisition? You know what? I I would say that the acquisition is probably the unique thing because most people in the acquisition world are usually trying to do roll-ups and it's rare for somebody like us to be a growth company. You know, we're not making a bunch of money to go out and be buying things to go and replace the tech. I think that's about the only thing that we do that's really rare. I think that we do a really good job of kind of classic inbound marketing, but we're not blazing a new trail with any of it. We're using best practice. We're using the tools. We follow up with our friends at Salesforce or all the products we use. And we go and we we really do benchmark heavily against 
what do the best SaaS companies do? Because we're not, you know, we're not there yet. If we did everything as well as Salesforce, we'd be doing quite well. So that's that's the way we think about it. Um, we right. are willing to try any new tool. Though. That tends to be something we we're software people, so we love software. So if someone comes with a new tool, we're we're very willing to kind of take risks and try stuff like that. I mean, I think that's most SaaS companies, but uh, yep. that is something unique to us in our culture. Fantastic. Okay. I mean, let's say you're looking to you're looking at a company. I mean, how do you decide? I guess how do you structure your deals? How do you how do you evaluate a company? So uh, it, it, for us, it's it's a little bit old school. Where you know, I grew up in a in a classic sort of mature acquisition. So we're doing you know discounted cash flow using Excel, modeling out revenues, and using you know net present value to come up with it. It's maybe not the most sexy way to do it. You know, people are running around with multiples and throwing that stuff out there. But that stuff is, to me is not real. And typically, we're not buying things that we expect to grow through the roof. We're buying usually pretty mature businesses. They're growing, say, 15%, 10%. They're profitable. So you can run a classic capital budgeting process and really figure out what are they going to make. Um, that's also my background. I'm a corporate finance guy by training. So it would really bother me to use multiples. So we mm -hmm. kind of use that to have the conversation about their perception of value. But when we come up with our number, it's a great big Excel model with a net present value. Got it. So if people, I mean, you know, obviously I'm sure what you're saying is, is kind of, you know, a lot of, uh, there could probably be a lot of confusion to people. So if people wanted to learn more about how all this stuff works, how you would kind of value a company, what, what kind of phrases would they Google? I think you're, you're basically just going to go pick up like classic corporate finance documents. And I would say if you're not from that background, it, it's probably not the right way to do it. Anyone coming from a PE background, they're going to know mm -hmm. that kind of stuff cold, but it's a discipline. It would be like saying, I want to learn accounting today. You kind of have to start from first principles. Corporate right. finance is the same thing. You're not going to kind of read a book and immediately get it. It's uh, it's a discipline that you would have to learn over time. But if you want to, I mean, just, you know, you look up, up corporate finance books and there's plenty of textbooks. You look at like first year, you don't really need much more than like a first year business degree finance uh, textbook that'll get you pretty much where you need to go for what we do. Like we don't sit there and like worry about tax and some of those things in immense detail. We pay other people for that. So the basic is like first year business school, corporate finance. There you go, guys. Don't try to do this at home by yourself. Learn it. Anyway, so talk about I mean, talk about some of the struggles growing Resolve or, or maybe any business that you've had in the past. I'm just interested in kind of what you've learned and kind of the, the big shit you had to deal with. Yeah. So, I mean, our challenge at Resolver is that we're, you know, we're going after a really big market and there are a lot of different facets to it. It's not one big thing. It's, you know, a hundred little things. And so what we have had to learn and probably haven't fully learned yet is focus. So I think one of the biggest things that um, entrepreneurs struggle with, and I certainly did, is we want to take every deal and we want to do everything. And I, I think that there's a lot of people out there like Lean Startup and a few others that have really started to get people, you know, let's focus instead of doing 10% of everything, just do one thing to 100%. So I think that really picking your target market and actually starting with one that's smaller I know VCs all want to see something that's all oh, it's got a billion dollar potential, but you really have to start with something smaller that you can get your hands around and dominate and then go wider. And so I think that's something that we've had to learn is we are now narrowing into the things that we're really good at and not taking kind of deals on the side or going into geographies that we haven't been in before. Let's dominate the stuff that we're really good at first. I love that. So was there any kind of one scenario where it's just like, okay, I, I just need to stop and I really need to focus? Because there's always that one point where things almost kind of, you know, are about to fall apart completely, right? 
Yeah. I mean, again, because we buy stuff, I don't think anything's like, we, we never really had that moment where like, it's like, everything's on fire. Um, mm. you know, I've been through the growth stages where that's happened, but even then, like if you're growing at like a hundred percent and everything is on fire, everything's supposed to be on fire. You're growing hundred percent and that's amazing. So I don't right. think there's been a moment where we've really slipped off, but there's definitely moments where we've gone too slow because, you know, we're chasing a deal in, you know, the middle of Africa or like we had a partner recently, like want to do business in Nigeria and we started it. And we're like, what? you know, we shouldn't be doing this. This isn't right. This isn't a good use of our time right now. Great. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm curious. I mean, how do you, how do you structure your day? Yeah, I wish I was better at it, especially because we're coming off a bunch of acquisitions. My job tends to bounce around a lot. So I'm very cyclical. Like I'll start looking for deals and there's that process. And then you get in, you're negotiating them and then you're in integration mode. Generally speaking, I tend to not think of things in a day. I usually think in terms of a week. And so I travel a bunch. So I try to get a bunch of my one-to-one meetings. I do a lot of those on either Monday or Friday to catch up. And in between, I, I'm really just at the beck and call. If, uh, if I'm out that week seeing customers, then I'm all day just you know, meeting customers or meeting partners. If I'm in the office, I try to, to use my mornings to do thinking type work because I know that's the point in time when I'm freshest. I know after lunch, if I'm trying to do something on my own, my focus isn't there. So I try to do more meetings at that time because I get a bit more energy from doing that. But my business is not the one where I can really just say, hey, I'm going to go do this because it's just so variable. Right. So at a high level, it sounds like there's a lot of strategy, uh, meeting with clients, and then uh, management, right? One-on-ones. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say that if you, yeah, if you go at that higher level, I, I would spend uh, the bulk of my time either I'll pick like a special project where it might be an acquisition right now for me. It's like figuring out our partnership strategy and I'll spend a bunch of time on that. I don't spend a huge amount of time on, on uh, management. It's probably half a day a week just to kind of touch base with people. I tend to like the team to do their own thing. And so I try to spend all my time uh, either on that special project or talking to customers. I think that the most important thing for that I can do is I can kind of be above the fray and I can go and hear what customers think and bring that back into the org. So I, I try to spend more time with customers. And as part of our sort of vision mission statement, it's, it's aim big, be great, be loved by customers. It's impossible to be loved by customers if your CEO doesn't love the customers and talk to them all the time. Got it. Makes sense. A couple more questions as we wrap towards wrapping up. What is one new tool that you've added in the last year that's added a lot of value to your life? So it could be like a Peloton bike or it could be like a like Evernote. My favorite right now is uh, an app called Pocket. I don't Love know if it. you know it. It's, yep. it's just the greatest thing ever because you know, you're... I like Twitter. I like I'm standing in airport lines a ton and I'm kind of scrolling through Twitter and I see this article. I'm like, I'm interested in that, but I'm about to walk through security. I don't have time to read it. And so I'll just, you know, I just click on the thing, send it to pocket. And then, you know, later on when I'm, you know, got time, I can sit down and bang through a bunch of stuff. It's great for tagging stuff for later. It's, I've tried to use Evernote. I've tried to use other things for that. And I just, pocket does it just so perfectly. Um, so I really build a reading list um, and it's, it's made a huge difference. And I, I think I got it maybe six months ago and it's, it's my favorite app by far. Yeah. You know what's funny about it? I've been using it for a, for a couple of years and my, my struggle with it has always been you end up saving so much stuff that I have gig, like three or four <laughs> gigs of stuff saved that I just don't know what to come back to because it's all good stuff you save, right? Because you follow good people on Twitter. So how do you deal with that? I'm a little more uh, picky. I've kind of eventually learned that I, I kind of know how much I can do. So I know that if I'm going through Twitter and I've like saved two or three things, like it's got to be really top end for me to do it. And right. I, I find like the whole internet is just a deluge of the same thing over and over again. Yep. And 
there's actually not that much really. There's a lot of great content out there, but it's just, it's like 1% of the internet. So I actually find it a little harder to find the really great things. It's not just kind of rehashing it or like, it's like the content farm for somebody that's just getting stuff out there for clicks. Uh, so I, I tend to be very, very picky and um, I'll go through it, you know, probably once a week and be like, not reading, not reading file. If I'm, you know, there's some stuff I just file because I know that that's going to be a project for me at some point and I'll go and deal with it later. So I just tag it and throw it over there and I'll come back at it later. So actually right now I have a giant thing of anything about people running partnership, anything I've saw over the last six months, I threw into that and I have probably about 30 articles to go through. Got it. Love it. Okay. Well, what's one must read book you'd recommend to everyone? Without question, uh, Drucker's uh, The Effective Executive. So I'm sure if you've read it, but I think for Great anybody, book. especially new managers, I run a lot of my life by it. And actually, whenever I give it to one of our new managers, they kind of laugh. They're like, this is exactly what you do. I'm like, yes. Like I, I've, I've outsourced my approach to management to Drucker. And I'm like, if I do that, I will be probably pretty good. I, I, it made a massive difference in my career. So I cannot recommend it. I love that. You know, I, let's look at Jeff Bezos, right? He makes people read the goal, right? And I, I want, so, you know, there's required reading for, for my managers too, but it's like, I'm wondering if, if there should be a process built in on, on making sure that they actually go through it. So actually, how do you actually make sure that they're aligned with those principles from Drucker? So like, it depends on the, the manager. Like I have a few senior people, a couple of my C-level managers. Like I, I honestly don't care if they've read it or not. It's really like they have their own style and they do their own thing. And I'm very mm-hmm. hands-off with that. The one I've usually am giving it to new managers that are asking me like, how do I, you know, how do I do this? How do I run effective meetings? How do I manage these one-to-ones? And I'll say, well, I can tell you everything, but it, it really came out of this, but it's down to them. And I would always tell them like, if it doesn't resonate with you, then it's the wrong thing. Like everyone's going to have to have their approach. You don't have to do it like me. So I don't tend to force that stuff down. I tell people to read that. I tell people to re- read Thinking Fast and Slow. I tell people to read uh, Christians and stuff, but you know, take from it what you will. Some of it we layer more into our strategy, especially Clayton Christensen stuff. But most of the rest of it, if it's a better approach, it's but it's much more personal. Love it. Okay. Well, Will, this has been fantastic. What's the best way for people to find you online? www.resolver.com. Um, I am a Twitter person. So if you ever want to reach out, it's Will A. Anderson. So there's two A's in there. Uh, that's my middle name. I Unfortunately, I had Will Anderson, but I, I left it at some point and someone scooped it on me. Oh, that sucks. Okay. Well, Will, thanks so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing. 